if you would take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Zechariah. We are nearing the end of the Old Testament. We have just tonight in Zechariah and one more installment which will include Malachi before we'll at last turn to the New Testament and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Zechariah is one of those books in my estimation of the Old Testament that can be a little intimidating because it's apocalyptic in nature. What I mean by that is it includes visions and symbols and images that we don't always know how to interpret. This, the thing that makes us intimidated by the book of Revelation makes us intimidated at times by the book of Zechariah. But what I hope to show you is, and, and I, I, hope, I hope you'll have some memory of your readings in Revelation as we read through and study through Zechariah. What I want to show you is you don't really have to be intimidated by apocalyptic writing. Like there's sections in Daniel like that. There's Zechariah that's primarily apocalyptic and Revelation. It's really a limited body of apocalyptic literature in the Bible. But once you figure out the technique for reading apocalyptic, it becomes much, much easier. I'll tell you another thing that makes it a struggle for us. We have been coached by some pretty bad Bible interpretation over the past 40 or 50 years to try to milk thoughts or principles from text in which they do not exist. So when we open the Bible and we read a passage and we cannot come to the conclusion, be wrong with me. That's the way I approach passages like that. I can remember as a new believer, I'd hear a sermon or someone talking about a passage, or I'd read something in a study Bible somewhere, and then I read that passage and I think, I don't know where in the world I got that from. Something must be wrong with me. Well, what I found was it was not me. The problem was trying to milk ideas from a passage where they don't exist. A plain reading of the text is sufficient. God is not in the business of trying to hide truth from his people, right? There are challenges to Bible interpretation, yes. But God is not in heaven laughing at our inability to interpret apocalyptic passages. In fact, it is his delight, it is his intention that we would understand them and understand them well and find encouragement for our soul from them. In fact, some of the most encouraging passages in the Bible are apocalyptic texts when we really begin to see and understand the message that's being communicated in those books. One day we'll get around to looking at Revelation together in a series of sermons, but I'll tell you this now. All the book of Revelation is, is the message of the gospel. There's very little, very little new information that's introduced in the book of Revelation. What the Apostle John says with words in the Gospel of John, he says with pictures in the book of Revelation. And he says it specifically to people who are suffering for their faith in Jesus. And he's calling them by the power of the Gospel to persevere in their faith, to stand fast, and to know that their confession of faith, that Jesus, not Caesar, is Lord, is sufficient to see them through and sufficient to advance the kingdom even in the face of great opposition. There's a similarly encouraging message shared here in the book of Zechariah. Historically, Zechariah comes after the people of Israel come back from their Babylonian captivity. The people of Judah are carried away. The people of Jerusalem are carried away by Nebuchadnezzar, and they spend 70 years in Babylon. You remember that from our study, or remember that from some past study, perhaps. After 70 years, they were permitted by the Persian king Cyrus to return to the nation of Judah and to begin reconstructing the city of Jerusalem. 
They get back there, and under the leadership of Nehemiah, they begin to reconstruct the wall, and in what is perhaps the most impressive construction project in redemptive history, the walls are reconstructed in 52 days. The Bible says with one hand they uh, worked the trowel and applied the mortar and placed the bricks, and with the other hand they held a sword to stave off the enemy armies that were surrounding them there in the city of Jerusalem. It's really a beautiful picture of what God does there. Ezra the priest reintroduces the law, and there's a celebration and a want to honor, to obey the command of God within the holy city for the first time in nearly a hundred years under Ezra's leadership. And they begin to settle back in. But after a period of time, although the foundation of the temple had been laid, the people, like most of mankind, begin to suffer from mission drift. You know what mission drift is? Mission drift is when you start out to do something and over the course of time you forget what you were doing in the first place. You begin to drift off into other tasks, less meaningful tasks, responsibilities, or the pursuit of certain comforts. And so 16 years after the laying of the foundation of the, of the second temple in Jerusalem, God sends a new prophet, a prophet named Haggai. And Haggai says in Haggai chapter 1, is it right that we dwell in our paneled houses while the house of the Lord lies in ruins. In other words, they had rebuilt their houses, and because their homes had been rebuilt, there was a level of comfort for them there that allowed them to forget or to neglect the weightier matter of rebuilding the temple. And we're not talking about building a church building. We're talking about the temple, that place that was the residence of God's great glory in the city of Jerusalem. Now, we can do without a church building on this side of the new covenant. But the temple was essential to worship under the old covenant. These are two different things, apples and oranges. And Haggai says, we must resume the reconstruction of the temple. We must be right with God before we concern ourselves with creature comforts. And around that same time, shortly after the ministry of Haggai, a prophet named Zechariah comes along to encourage the people along the same lines as Haggai, to encourage them to rebuild the temple. But what Zechariah does is to help us to understand the significance of the reconstruction of that temple, the significance of what God was doing in that season of Israel's history. And it really is a powerful picture presented specifically in Zechariah 1 through 8 where the visions of God for Jerusalem are laid out for the nation. Now, in your outline, you got just two key themes. Uh, you got the eight night visions... And then you've got the central message, feel for how apocalyptic imagery and symbolism really works. In verse 7, the visions are introduced, chapter 1 and verse number 7. The Bible says here, on the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Iddo. He says, I looked out in the, near, in the night and saw a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the valley. Behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. And I asked, what are these, my Lord? The angel who was talking to me replied, I'll show you what they are. Now, already, already, this is the beautiful thing about apocalyptic. I hope to, to disarm your, your objections to reading symbols and Im imagery in apocalyptic literature. You saw a vision, horses, different colored horses, men riding the horses. And Zechariah says, what are these? 
Now that's what apocalyptic imagery almost always does. It asks, what are these? And the narrator, under the inspiration of the Spirit, tells us how to interpret it. He who has ears to hear, hear. The angel who was talking with me replied, I'll show you what they are. The man standing among the myrtle trees explained, they're the ones the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. They reported to the angel of the Lord, which is a way of saying they reported to God. We have patrolled the earth, and right now the whole earth is calm and quiet. Now that sounds good, but it's not. And in verse 12, the angel of the Lord responded, How long, Lord of hosts, will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem and the cities of Judah that you've been angry with these 70 years? The Lord replied with kind and comforting words to the angel who was speaking with me. So the angel who was speaking with me said, Proclaim. The Lord of hosts says, I am extremely jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. I am fiercely angry with the nations that are at ease. For I was a little angry, but they made it worse. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. In mercy, I have returned to Jerusalem. My house will be rebuilt within it. This is the declaration of the Lord of hosts. And a measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem. Proclaim further. This is what the Lord of hosts says. My cities will again overflow with prosperity. The Lord will once more comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Now, we have unpacked for us here what this image of horsemen is really all about. It, on the one hand, helps us to see that God has not lost interest in the activities of the world. The fact that God has horsemen patrolling the earth is a note to us that God is keenly interested in what's going on in this world and that God has drawn near in the events that are unfolding in this world. They might have been inclined to think that because the temple had not yet been reconstructed or perhaps they had grown cold and apathetic that God was somehow distant or disinterested in the activities of Judea and Jerusalem. But that is not at all the case. And it's proven by the presence of these angelic horsemen who are busy about the business of patrolling the world. Not only are the people of Israel reminded of God's nearness and God's interest in their well-being, but they're reminded at the same time of God's knowledge of the sin of surrounding nations. Not only is God for us and with us a God of comfort among us, but he's a God of judgment and protection against those who would oppose us. Now see, there's, this is really not all that difficult. Now here's, here's what frustrates me. If you find the right TV preacher, he'll tell you that you have to interpret the red horse one way and the sorrel horse another way and the dappled horse another way when nothing could be further from the truth. We don't have a picture book in the Bible. So in order to see the vision... An adequate description of the vision itself must be provided. But the text itself has explained for us what it means. And what it means is that God is near his people and against those who oppose them. 
It's a simple but remarkably encouraging message. And what apocalyptic helps us to do, because it is presenting the message in a different way, is to appreciate the beauty of this reality from a slightly different perspective than we might otherwise see it in a different biblical text. So God says, I'm back. And boy, am I back. And I'm, and I'm watching over the city of Jerusalem. And by the way, I'm watching over the neighboring nations as well. That's vision number one. There's a second vision in verses 18 and following. He says, Then I looked up and saw four horns. So I asked the angel who was speaking with me, What are these? And he said to me, These are the horns that scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. And the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I asked, What are they coming to do? And he replied, These are the horns that scattered Judah, so no one could raise his head. These craftsmen have come to terrify them, to cut off the horns of the nations that raise their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. So here you have the vision of four horns and four craftsmen. And, and, and here's the thing that you'll appreciate over time in reading apocalyptic literature. There's, there's, I call it, there's a bank of images, and that's all there are. And in the event that some other image is introduced, you'll have a clear definition. But apocalyptic is always working with the same images. Like I could go and I could find a, a, a second century BC apocalyptic work that wasn't Christian or wasn't Jewish. And it would use the same images in the same ways. And we would interpret those images the same ways, right? It, it's, it's a genre thing like we come to know what to expect. When you hear horn, if you're reading apocalyptic, you know that it's a reference to rulers or authorities. Now, we could probably identify the four horns, authorities, or rulers that are referenced here in the passage. Ammon, Moab, Edom, and Philistia would have been among those candidates for the four horns featured here. But that's really irrelevant to the message that God intends to communicate. So don't bog down in trying to decipher historically who these four horns are. The point here is that rulers, authorities, nations have come against Israel in the past. They have opposed Israel. They have pilfered Israel. They have damaged Israel. They have oppressed and hurt Israel. But God has sent his craftsmen. And again, we have an example in this vision of a picture offered and then a question asked. What are these? And then what are the craftsmen coming to do? And the reply is this. These are the horns that scattered Judah. And the craftsmen have come to terrify them, to cut off the horns of the nations that raise their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. The message of the second vision is really quite simple. There has been a season in Israel's history when neighboring nations terrified you. But God has shown up in such a way as to terrify those who have made themselves enemies of Israel. In other words, Israel, God is on your side. It's a really straightforward interpretation. Now, I said to you earlier, I hope you read with some memory of Revelation, because already we're touching on images and symbols that are repeated there in the book of Revelation, and they're going to interpret the same way, because horns are always rulers and authorities, and horsemen are always about the nearness of God, watching over the sins of his enemies and, and tending to the needs of of his people. Now in chapter 2 we have some, uh, another example of this stock or bank of images that's used in apocalyptic literature. He says I looked up looked up and saw a man with a measuring line in his hand. 
And I asked, where are you going? And he answered me to measure Jerusalem to determine its width and its length. The angel who was speaking with me went out and another angel went out to meet him. And he said to him, run and tell this young man, Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls because of the number of people and livestock in it. The declaration of the Lord, I will be a wall of fire around it and I will be the glory within it. Get up, leave the land of the north. This is the Lord's declaration for I've scattered you like the four winds of heaven. This is the Lord's declaration. Go Zion, escape you who are living with daughter Babylon. For the Lord of hosts says this, he has sent me for his glory against the nations who are plundering you. For anyone who touches you touches the pupil of his eye. I will move against them with my power, and they will become plunder for their own servants. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Daughter Zion, shout for joy and be glad, for I'm coming to dwell in you. This is the Lord's declaration. And more is said concerning what God intends to do through his inhabiting the city of Jerusalem. Now, the measuring line is a little more difficult in, in terms of defining a symbol, but you really get it. Intuitively, you understand it. When we moved into our neighborhood, there was a long stretch of the street that, that was vacant. There were just lots there. And in fact, the lots weren't even marked off. It was just, they were just lots. It was just an open field there in the neighborhood. Now it's almost completely filled. But we knew, we knew that houses were coming when we came home one day and there was a surveyor there who was laying out the lot lines. This man surveying the city of Jerusalem is a surveyor sent from God. And his presence there is intended to indicate for the people of Israel that God is moving back in. That's exactly what that means. There is this horrifying vision in the middle chapters of Ezekiel. It's often hard to track because we don't understand the layout of the temple or the layout of Jerusalem geographically or even topographically the way Ezekiel's audience might have. But if you follow what Ezekiel is describing there, the picture is of the glory of God leaving the temple and ultimately leaving the city of Jerusalem. If we have eyes to see, it's one of the saddest passages in all of the Bible, even surpassing the physical destruction of the temple. In fact, what that passage makes clear is that the physical destruction of the temple was just codifying what had already happened theologically because God had exited stage right. The glory of God left and the temple was deconstructed under the Babylonians. But what is made clear here in this third vision is that God is moving back into the midst of his people. Jerusalem will be his home again. And he intends to dwell there in such power that there'll be no need for the walls they've reconstructed. For he'll be a fortified fire around them. And again, this the imagery of, of measuring is, is about God inhabiting and the vastness of that city. There's examples of this in uh, the revelation of Jesus at the end of your New Testament as well. In chapter 3, we have the vision of Joshua the high priest. Beginning in verse 3, the Bible says, verse 1 rather, the Bible says, He showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord with Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. 
May the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Isn't this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed with filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. So the angel of the Lord spoke to those standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to him, See, I have removed your guilt from you, and I will clothe you with splendid robes. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So a clean turban was placed on his head, and they clothed him in garments while the angel of the Lord was standing nearby. Then the angel of the Lord charged Joshua, This is what the Lord of hosts says. If you walk in my ways and keep my instructions, you'll both rule my house and take care of my courts. I will grant you access among these who are standing here. Listen, Joshua the high priest, you and your colleagues sitting before you, indeed these men are a sign that I am about to bring my servant the branch. Notice the stone I've set before Joshua. On that one stone are seven eyes, which is just the symbol of God's omniscient presence that he sees and knows all things. On that stone are seven eyes. I will engrave an inscription on it. This is the declaration of the Lord of hosts. And I will take away the guilt of this land in a single day. On that day, each of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and fig tree. This is the declaration of the Lord of hosts. Now, one of the things that was lost when the people of Israel went into Babylonian captivity was the high priest. You know, being a high priest was not like being a pastor in a Baptist church. They didn't put together a priestly search committee and go out and find one. You inherited that position by, by birthright, by lineage. It, it was to be handed down, and there was meticulous detail about the keeping of records to ensure that the right person was at the right place in terms of priestly lineage and order. But all of that had been lost, and they're being carried away into captivity. And although efforts seem to have been made at restoring the priesthood, the priesthood remained in a polluted condition. Until God reinstitutes the priesthood, the priesthood would remain in a polluted condition. But here God sanctifies Joshua the high priest in laying aside God once again sanctifies the high priest and in doing so sanctifies the temple. We don't have the same categories for clean and unclean that they would have had in ancient Near Eastern culture. But, but there, are, there are real ceremonial problems with the destruction of the temple and the rebuilding of the temple. Namely, that place has to be sanctified once more. And the way it was sanctified in 1 Kings, or 2 Kings rather, 1 Kings chapter 6 when Solomon prayed and the glory of God came down and inhabited the temple and it was sanctified by his presence. Now again God is sanctifying the temple by the sanctification of the high priestly office, namely Joshua. There's something else that's happening. It's subtle, but there's something else that's happening in the book of Ze Zechariah that can be overlooked. For the first time in the Old Testament, the office of priest and king is being drawn together in a powerful way. We tend to think that Jesus as prophet, priest, and king was an expectation that would have been had throughout the period of the Old Testament, but it's, it's really a late revelation from God. Over the course of time, as history clicks along, God is revealing more and more of what ought to be our expectation for the Messiah who was to come. 
And if you could back up and interview a Jew a generation before the book of Zechariah and ask what their expectations were of a Messiah, the notion of a Messiah who was both priest and king would have never entered their mind. In fact, there's Messianic literature from before Zechariah that talks about two messiahs, one that serves as priest and one that serves as king. But here, in Joshua and Zerubbabel, those two offices are beginning to draw near. They're coming together. Our expectation for the son of David, the Messiah who is to come, is one not only who bears spiritual import and significance to us, but also political power. He is to be prophet and king and we find him to be priest as he comes as our paschal lamb the one that makes atonement for our sin I, 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 I don't want you to miss the devotional quality of Zechariah but I'm almost as excited about us seeing together the, the relative simplicity of apocalyptic literature and how God is speaking here there's a fifth vision in chapter 4 look at verse 1 sure is Jesus. The question is, who is the branch? The immediate fulfillment of the promise of a coming branch is Zerubbabel, but the long-term fulfillment of the coming of the branch is Jesus. What we're going to find is that Zerubbabel, who comes back as governor, eventually functions as a king, is in the line of David. You won't remember this, because I don't remember this in our teaching time. I don't remember what I talked about last week, so I hope you don't feel bad about that. But at the end of 2 Kings, you have a Davidic king who's being carried away, and he's carried away in great disgrace. But the book really ends with a note of hope. It's a hope that's seldom seen, but there's hope because he's alive. And because the line of David remains, there is hope for the people of Israel. Zerubbabel comes a note to remember that the line of David lives on even at the close of 2 Kings in that disastrous era of Israel's history. Look down to chapter 4 and verse 1. The angel who was speaking with me then returned and roused me as one awakened out of sleep. He asked me, what do you see? And I replied, I see a solid gold lampstand there with a bowl on its top. It has seven lamps on it and seven channels for each of the lamps on its top. There are also two olive trees beside it, one on the right and the other is on the left. And I asked the angel who was speaking with me, aren't you glad for Zechariah's questions? What are these, my Lord? And he says, don't you know what they are, replied the angel who was speaking with me. And I said, no, my Lord. So he answered, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by strength or by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. What are you, great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you'll become a plain, and he'll bring out the capstone accompanied by shouts of grace, grace to it. And the word of the Lord came to me, Zerubbabel's hands have laid the foundation of this house and his hands will complete it. Then you'll know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who scorns the day of small things? These seven eyes of the Lord which scan throughout the whole earth will rejoice when they see the plumb line in Zerubbabel's hand. And I asked him, what are the two olive trees on the right and left of the lampstand? And I questioned him further, what are the two olive branches beside the two gold conduits from which golden oil pours out? And he inquired of me, don't you know what these are? And I replied, no, my Lord. 
These are the two anointed ones, he said, who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Now here's the picture. And if you put together what we've been informed of here in the passage, you have, you have uh, these bowls that are being fed by these two olive trees who are, who are the anointed ones that stand uh, by the Lord. And these olive oil trees are feeding these bowls, that bowls rather, that are feeding this lamp that is eternally burning among the people. It is the anointing of God on the olive trees that feeds the bowls, that feeds the lamp, that burns eternally in the midst of Jerusalem. And I'll, I'll give you this because it's not spelled out so clearly, but it doesn't matter what apocalyptic book you pick up, from what generation you pick it up, from what time in history you pick it up, whether it's Zechariah here or Revelation later, the lampstand is always symbolic of the presence of God. Now, that again is a symbol that reoccurs in Revelation. Again, you just have a certain group. There's just a select few images, and they're used again and again. You think about that with regards to the book of Revelation. The lampstand is the presence of God. If that is the case, and that is the case, then the presence of God in the New Testament is no longer a temple construction. It is the church of Jesus Christ. It's not a building. It's a body. The presence of God among us in this world is his bride, the body of Christ. It is the church of Jesus and here God is saying, I am with you, in the midst of you. I am among you. Zerubbabel will do this great work. One in the line of David will build the temple. The temple will be reconstructed, and I will dwell in the midst of you as a people. But it will not happen by his power. It will not happen by his might. It will not come in his personal strength. It will be by my spirit. My anointing will allow him to see this project through. The anointing of God on Joshua the high priest and the anointing of God on Zerubbabel the king of Judah will be the fuel that keeps the fire of God among them burning eternally. It's really a refreshing vision. The sixth vision comes, and we've got to move quickly here in chapter 5 and verse 1. Again, the same imagery that you'll see later in Revelation. I looked up and saw a flying scroll. What do you see, he asked me. I see a flying scroll, I replied, 30 feet long and 15 feet wide. You know the symbolism of a 30-foot-long scroll that's 15 feet wide? It means it's real big. <laughs> In verse 3, he said to me, This is the curse that's going out over the whole land. For every thief will be removed according to what is written on one side, and everyone who swears falsely will be removed according to what is written on the other. I'll send it out. This is the declaration of the Lord of hosts, and it will enter the house of the thief and the house of the one who swears falsely by my name. It will stay inside his house and destroy it along with all its timbers and stones. The scroll symbolizes God's word, and that much is made clear in the vision. And it ensures, or assures rather, the people of Israel that God will vindicate his judgment against those who oppose him now think about what's been described in the former vision God said I'm going to be near and what a word of encouragement that is in this vision 
God says, I'm going to be near. But for those who needed to hear, this was not a word of encouragement. When you're walking with God, it is a comfort to know that he is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. But when you're running from God, it is a dreadful thought to know that he is an all-seeing God whose attention we cannot escape. And that is precisely what is symbolized in the flying scroll. The seventh vision is in verses 5 and following. The angel who was speaking with me came forward and told me, look up and see what this is, what this is that is approaching. I asked, what is it? He responded, it's a measuring basket that's approaching. And he continued, this is their iniquity in all the land. Then a lead cover was lifted, and there was a woman sitting inside the basket. This is wickedness, he said. He shoved her down into the basket and pushed the lead weight over its opening. And I looked up and saw two women approaching the, with the wind in their wings. Their wings were like those of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and sky. And I asked the angel who was speaking with me, where are they taking the basket? To build a shrine for it in the land of Shinar, that is, Babylon. When that is ready, the basket will be placed there on its pedestal. God says, I'm going to take the iniquity of Israel and carry it away to Babylon. And in some ways, what is being symbolized is, has already come to pass. The exile of Israel into Babylon was intended by God to have a chastening or purifying effect. But more than just the change that was wrought in the lives of those who went away and have now come back. And by the way, it was effective. The exile to Babylon was effective. You know how I know it was? Because if you go to Israel today, you'll find all kind of debauchery, but you won't find an idol one. There are no idols in Israel. From the time of Babylon till today, there are no idols in Israel. It was effective and it hasn't been forgotten even after all these years. Millennia have passed, and the people of Israel have not forgotten the lesson of their Babylonian captivity. God says more than just the purifying effect of that experience there, your sin is to be carried away quite literally. Do you remember weeks ago when Habakkuk asked how it could be, how it could be that God would use the only nation more wicked than Israel to bring judgment against them? Now the tables have turned, and the iniquity of Israel has been carried away, and it has been placed or positioned within the land of Shinar, the land of Babylon, and it is there that God would exact perfect justice, not only against the sin, the iniquity of Israel, but that of Babylon as well. The last vision, in chapter 6 and verse 1, the Bible says, I looked up again and saw four chariots coming from between the two mountains. The mountains were made of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second chariot black horses, the third chariot white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all strong horses. So I inquired of the angel who was speaking with me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel told me, these are the four spirits of heaven going out after presenting themselves to the Lord of the whole earth. The one with the black horses is going to the land of the north. The white horses are going after them, but the dappled horses are going to the land of the south. As the strong horses went out, they wanted to go patrol the earth, and the Lord said, Go patrol the earth. So they patrolled, and he summoned me, saying, See, those going to the land of the north have pacified my spirit in the northern land. 
those horses that patrolled the earth in the first vision have now been dispatched and sent out to execute God's judgment on the basis of the report that was given in the first vision. I had wanted to have a board here and show you the symmetry in these visions, and maybe we can talk through that in a point academy somewhere down the road to see the intelligent design of the book of Zechariah in these visions. I, that kind of thing gets me excited, but I'm also aware that lots of other people really don't care about it, so I've, I'm always reluctant to sort of build something like that, but it's the same group of horses. Only this time, they're not just reporting. They're operating on the orders of the king who has instructed them to exact judgment against those who again have opposed God. The message of the visions is simple. that God is for his people and against those who would oppress his people. It's a really straightforward message. Built into that is the expectation that they'll be serious about the reconstruction of the temple because it's there that God dwells. And it's through the temple that God has promised to be in their midst, to dwell with them eternally. Now you have a second key theme just briefly. I think I can tell you this in uh, what little bit of time we have, which is just about a minute. Chapters 7 and 8 are the center of the book. And we know they're the center of the book because of the structural organization of the book. And the message is this. You ready? In chapter 8, verses 1 through 13, the message is rebuild the temple. Again and again and again, God says, let your hands be strong. Let your hands be strong. Let your hands be strong. Rebuild the temple. That's the central message of Zechariah. Rebuild the temple. But that central message is coupled together with an exhortation to love their neighbor. In fact, you have repeated this idea of how they had transgressed the Lord in times past. If you look at chapter 7 and verse number 9, the Lord of hosts says, Make fair decisions, show faithful love and compassion to one another, don't oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor, and don't plot evil in your hearts against one another. If you read chapters 7 and 8, those exact words are repeated again and again. You see something repeated like that, it's likely an indication God's pretty serious about it, right? And the reason those words are echoed is because that had been their sin in times past. There was a time when Israel had a temple, but they failed to show faithful love. They didn't demonstrate compassion. They neglected the needs of widows and the oppressed among them. They were rotten people. What God is reminding them of is, is the fact that you may have the temple, but if you're just a low-down, dirty dog, the temple may not do you much good. The temple anticipates that there's an earnestness on our part to worship him in spirit and in truth, which is the beauty of what Jesus has done as the new and better temple. Not a place that we go into, but a body that we abide in. Nourishing us in the same way that those olive trees fed the bowls, that fed the lamp, that burned eternally. The anointing of God's Spirit on His people, the indwelling presence of Jesus in us ensures that the fire burns eternally. That the light, the lamp, never goes out. We, of course, look beyond the expectation of Zechariah that Zerubbabel, one in the line of David, would be established as the king of Israel to the son of David, established not temporarily, but eternally 
as the king of Israel and indeed the king of the world. His name, folks, is Jesus. He is a good and faithful God who draws near to his people, who promises to be in our midst. He is our lampstand. He, he is the guarantee of God's flying scroll that there is coming a day when God will vindicate his judgment, when justice will eternally and perfectly be served. He, he is the ruler and the authority that comes as the craftsman and cuts off the horns that have oppressed and attacked us. He is the guarantee of our salvation and the promise of our safety and the providence of God. I hope that you're refreshed by the message of Zechariah and I'm past. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth and for the chance to spend these moments together studying your word and hearing from you from this apocalyptic perspective of your goodness toward us. God, help us when we open the Bible to hear from you, to see something of your character, to acknowledge who we are apart from you, to celebrate who we've now become because of Jesus, to find insight and direction for life, wisdom by which we can live our life and conduct ourselves as salt and light in the world. Help us, Lord, as the bride to be a lampstand, a light on a hill. God, I, I pray that you would be with each member of this local body, that we'd be just that in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in this community, and even around the world as you'd be pleased to send us. And we ask it in Jesus' name.